It is my privilege to introduce our speaker today, Stephen Bauman. Stephen is the president and CEO of World Relief. I asked to introduce Stephen because I've seen firsthand the impact World Relief has on an individual, a community, and an entire country. BlackRock has had a partnership with World Relief in Rwanda for over 10 years. When we first started going to Rwanda, the infant mortality rate was one in five. That means one out of every five children didn't make it past their fifth birthday. At that time, World Relief began running a program that taught mothers basic healthcare and hygiene. And as a result of that today, the infant mortality rate has been cut in half to one in 10. There are children alive today because of our partnership and the work of World Relief. In addition, when we first started going 10 years ago, the HIV rate was 13%. And World Relief started running a program where they started youth groups in local churches that ran an abstinence-based sex education curriculum. Today, the HIV rate in Rwanda has been cut from 13% to 3%. World Relief is having a tremendous impact in Rwanda and all over the world. So would you please join me in welcoming Stephen Bauman. Good morning, everyone. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but I travel all over the U.S., around the world, and people know BlackRock Church. People talk about you. Um, and it dawned on me that when I saw this number, 58th Annual Missions Conference, that's, that's rare. That's, I don't, I've never seen that. 58 years of mission conferences. So thank God for you and who you are to the world. You're a light on the hill, and you probably don't realize to the extent you are. Speaking of lights on a hill, I met Josh, as he said, 10 years ago in Rwanda, where I was living with my wife and my two sons, then very young. And I was just back there. I go through there a lot, and I was just back there on a particular hill. Rwanda is full of hills, 1,000 hills, right? Standing on a hill overlooking a valley called Nyamashaki, which Josh and many of you know very well. And I was with a group of pastors and the mayor of Nyamashaki. He was thanking the pastors for helping the people in Nyamashaki, and particularly helping the people so they could help each other. Wow, talk about a light on the hill. And the pastor of the village is saying, thank you to the church. Now, my team there in Rwanda, a gentleman named Mile Green, some of you may know him. He wrote me two days ago. And said, whatever you do, just thank BlackRock Community Church. Thank the church. Because without BlackRock, we wouldn't be working in Yamashaki. And if we weren't working in Yamashaki, we wouldn't be serving those hundreds of churches, represented by those pastors, who are serving thousands of homes, moms and dads who are serving their kids and serving one another. So the modern paradigm for mission, missionaries, is not just those of us you see here on the stage, but it's missionaries making missionaries. And suddenly it looks like a movement. Your impact as BlackRock Church is, uh, wow, powerful. And so it's a real honor to be here. Steve, Larry, thank you. Uh, Josh as well, thank you to be here. It is a great honor. Answering the call. Answering the call. Are you called? Do you feel called? Do you know you're called? Or is calling just for Larry and the people that were up here on the stage? 
Is it for you? Is it for me? What, is, what do we mean by calling? What does calling mean today? Wouldn't it be great if it were just for the people on the stage and it weren't really for us and let them go, we'll stay? Except Jesus, <laughs> he kind of breaks that idea. There's a verse that I can't escape, and it goes like this. He says, anyone who has faith in me, this is John 14, anyone who has faith in me will do the things that I'm doing and even greater things. Don't you just wish you could clip that out and set it aside and say, you know what? We're not as good as you, Jesus. We can't do that. It's for somebody else. It's not for me. It's for the person that you elbow next to you in the pew. Anyone who has faith. So it's you. And it's me. So we're going to look at Isaiah 58, just a few chapters back from Isaiah 61, your theme. And if you know that chapter um, well, you might shudder a little bit and think, well, that's kind of strong stuff there, Stephen. I was hoping for a cozy Sunday because it's been cold out here and a lot of snow. And why don't you go for something a little bit easier? Isaiah 58. Okay, but here's the thing. It's really surprising. Because it's not just for the superheroes of faith. Actually, it's written to those struggling, to those whose lives are kind of not doing so well. As Brendan Manning says, this is written for the people whose cheese is falling off the cracker. You ever feel like that? Did your cheese ever fall off your cracker? Well, this text is an answer to a question that the people of Israel were waging against God. Israel was dispersed. They were in exile. The Babylonians had taken them over. They're hurting. They're wondering where is God in the midst of their suffering? Some of them had become selfish in their fasting, and fasting is just a code word for worship. They had kind of turned in on themselves, maybe a little bit superstitious. They were asking this question, God, where are you? Where are you, God? We are fasting, we are worshiping you, and we hear nothing. We've humbled ourselves, and you're not showing up. So Isaiah responds with the word of the Lord, trumpet blast, shout it aloud, okay, verse 1, then down to verse 6. Is this not the kind of worship I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them turn, uh, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. So there's this, if you do this and reach out to those around you that are suffering, then I will do this. And there's three stanzas of ifs and then thens. It's really fascinating. If you're a lawyer, this is really incredible. If you're a poet, it's also, it's a sort of sublime logic and supreme poetry all melded together in one chapter first uh, 14 verses. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. The people with the cheese falling off the cracker, that little word there, cry, in verse 9, if you cry to God for help, it's a, it's a rare word in Hebrew. It's shavah is the word. And it means the kind of 
cry where you're gulping for air in the midst of sobbing. So if you come here today and you say, oh great, it's missions week, that's for them, not for me. I get a pass, I can just kind of hang out during this service because my life is falling off its cracker. Actually, this is for you. If you cry, if you're desperate in your life somehow, some way, and you're crying out to God, boom, God says, here am I. I have some friends from uh, Minneapolis, uh, faithful people, go to church, in a wonderful church called Wooddale Church, Tim and Terry, are their names. He's a banker at one of the biggest banks in the world, an executive there. She's doing a degree in bioethics. Asked, they were asking this question, where, is there more? Um, what about our faith? Where are we? They were asking these questions, right? Frenetic, busy life, burdens and pressures. What about our faith? Where are we? Tim in his office one day connects with one of his colleagues. His colleague says, hey, Tim, um, do you love your neighbor? And Tim's like, well, um, depends who you mean. <laughs> no, he said, okay, my neighbors, well, um, down the road there's a doctor and there's a couple the other side. I actually don't really know them very well. Tim, by his own admission, lives in a pretty affluent suburb, suburban part of Minneapolis. His friend Jay says, well, why don't, you, um, why don't you pray about it? In fact, you know, I prayed about it for 30 days. Why don't you do the same? Ask God who your neighbor is. Okay, Tim's a pretty serious guy. And he says to his wife, Terry, I'm going to pray for this 30 days. I'm going to say, God, show me my neighbor and see what God does. Kind of a leap of faith, right? Seemed pretty harmless. 28 days he prays. Nothing. Brass ceiling, nothing. Zero. Okay, well, doing my duty. He's faithful to God. Day 29. He wakes up, goes off to the office early. Terry's wife gets up, goes out to the mailbox. Mailbox is gone. It's in pieces all over the road. It's just... She's like, oh my, I know what happened. Somebody put a pipe bomb in our mailbox because they're angry at Tim because he works at a bank. Now, now that's not too far-fetched because in those days it was anti-banking, it was Occupy Wall Street, and this bank that Tim works for is a big bank. You would all know it if I said it. So she calls the police. The police come over and they say, no, ma'am, no pipe bomb here. Well, what do you mean? The thing's, you know, blown up into a million pieces. Well, the policeman said, I can see the trail of the pieces of your mailbox over to your neighbor's house right into their garage door. <laughs> oh, must have been those teenagers. They might have been out the baseball bats swinging at mailboxes. I grew up in the Midwest. We do that for fun. Okay, not a good thing. I pray my kids don't do that. I was a prodigal. Okay, so the policeman goes over to the neighbor's house. Can you go over there and check? So he goes over there and comes back and says, Terry, actually, it's not as you think. It's not a teenager. Oh. Do you want to meet the person who <laughs> destroyed your mailbox? She said, yeah. Why don't we meet at the once was mailbox? So a few minutes later, she goes out to the mailbox, and she meets Harriet. 
Harriet, who's from Uganda, is shaking. Grabs her hands. Miss, Miss Terry, Miss Terry, I will pay, I will pay. And Terry, her compassion wells up in her heart. No, come on in, let's go have a drink and let's talk about it. Tell me your story, just tell me what happened. So Harriet explains her story. I'm from Uganda. I was kidnapped by Joseph Coney in the Lord's Resistance Army. You may know those folks. I mean, talk about evil incarnate. I was tortured. I was forced to be a slave. They murdered my husband. And I knew if I didn't try to escape, I would die there. She managed to escape, made her way back to Kampala, united with her family, but she had a chance because of her awful torture. She had a chance to come to the United States only by herself. She took the risk thinking that she could come and then earn some money, send for her kids to come and rebuild a whole new life. She comes to the United States, ends up in Minneapolis, and the only job she could find is to be a live-in caretaker for an older couple, one of whom is the doctor, two houses down. And she um, just started to learn how to drive. <laughs> so she came home, boom, and took the mailbox into the garage with her. <laughs> I forgot to tell that in the first story. They're probably still wondering, well, what happened to the mailbox? <laughs> you know, the first service is always kind of warm up. So if you meet those people, the mailbox you hit, you know, help them. <laughs> so later that night, Tim comes home. They have some time together, some tea. They explain the story. Tim's heart wells up. Oh, don't worry about the mailbox. You don't have to pay for it. In fact, let's go look at your car. Oh, my car. It's in really bad shape. She gets down on her knees in front of Tim and Terry, this woman, and says, may God bless you for your forgiveness. Tim helps her buy a new car. Tim walked, actually goes around the neighborhood and raises money to help get her kids to come over. He gets all the legal work done through groups like World Belief and others that can help do these kind of things. Reunites her family. Gets to know them. Actually, she, Harriet lives with them for a while. They, they get into a very close relationship. Just this last spring, Tim... She got remarried. She met a man. She got remarried because her husband had died. She gets married, and guess who she asked to walk her down the aisle? To hand her off to her new husband, Tim, my friend, who said, who's my neighbor? Terry said, Harriet has more faith in, every, in one single day than I've had in my whole life. She said, they said, when people want to congratulate them for their help of Harriet, she, she corrects them, no, 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 you don't understand. We were kind of lost. We were hurting and wondering where we are. Harriet helped us. Harriet helped us. Who is, who is my neighbor? What a prayer. This text in Isaiah 58 um, it's stunning for a lot of different reasons. And people who are scholars and they know Hebrew, they look at this text, these 14 verses, and they look at it very differently than the way we do. Why? Because they see a structure there that does something amazing. 
We tend to write letters or passages and we build up towards the end. There's the main point. Or you make a big, bold statement at the front end, like they do in the newspapers, and then you have to defend it, right? Well, in Hebrew culture, the literary structure there is very different. It's right in the middle is the big point. It's called a it's called technical language, but it basically builds to the middle, and there's a big point, and then it builds backwards down. That's like a mirror image of the top and the bottom. There's like an X that marks the spot in the middle. You can summarize the whole of Isaiah 58 with one verse and one word. Okay? It was amazing. Radically impacted me when I discovered this with the help of some friends. Verse 9. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry. Remember that guttural, gasping for air kind of cry? You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Now, the words, here am I, those three words are actually, is that it's one word in Hebrew. One word, hineni. This word here, that's the Hebrew, you read from right to left. The word is Hanani. Now, my wife who grew up in a Jewish family, she follows Jesus. People who know Jew, Jewish history, that know the Torah, anybody who's a Jew today, when you say the word Hanani, they will say, hush tones, wow. You know what that means. You know what Hanani means. Yeah, and I'll say, well, what does that mean to you? Well, Hanani is a very important word in the whole of the Bible for this reason. Hanani is the word that Moses uses when the bush reaches out and says, Moses, Moses, you know that? Moses, Exodus chapter 3, and there's a bush burning. He comes over and he throws off his shoes. You know what he says? He says, Hanani. He probably says, Hanani. Especially if you're Charlton Heston. <laughs> Samuel, when God called him Samuel, Samuel went running to Eli three times. Eli finally says, go talk to the Lord. Samuel, Samuel, he says, Hanani. Your servant is listening. Abraham, when God says you have to go take the life of your firstborn son, the promise I gave you, Abraham, Abraham, go to the mountain. Abraham says, Hanani, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm yours. And then when he's about to plunge the knife in, Abraham, Abraham, stop. He says, Hanani. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called, Floating creatures, seraphim, smoke, throne of God. You know, this big coals burn. It's really an intense scene. Who shall we send? Like this choir magnified by a billion times. Who shall we send? Isaiah, I'm all in. Penaini. So you had this steady march through the Old Testament about people who radically make themselves available to God. They say, I'm all in. And then you get to the end of the chapter of, well, the end of the book of Isaiah almost. And you got this one single word that people will speak about with hushed tones. 
And now it's not a person like you or me or Isaiah or these missionaries. It's God himself saying, I will be radically available for you. This is the inverse. This is all of us on our knees before God saying, God, show me my neighbor. God, I'm willing to do whatever. God, I'll say yes before you ask me what to do. Answering the call, I'm ready, God, whatever that is. Stay, go, pray. Doesn't matter. Just tell me. And now you've got the God of the universe doing that to you and I. Picture God bending his knee before you and saying, I am now at your disposal. What would you like? I will answer your cry, your call. Why? Because these people fasted ethically, not just personally. Personal worship, God, I praise you and I worship you, but you cannot separate that from ethical worship. What about our neighbors? God, through the prophet Isaiah, asked the question to the people of Israel the way Tim's friend Jay asked the question to him. Who is your neighbor? If you serve your neighbor, I will show up and I will make myself available to you. Hanani, Hanani. God says, Hanani, back to us. Now, we... Um, We all live crazy lives. And we're busy, frenetically so, I think, many of us, right? We're on the East Coast here. And that's before the snow. <laughs> and it just makes it worse. You've got kids that are going through hard times. You've got family members. You've got studies. Some of you may be in grief. You may have lost someone that you love. You've got that crushing burden of loss. Some of you are just finding life meaningless. You know, I love this church. I love everything. I love what you're talking about. But there's a dead and void emptiness in my heart, my soul. This is for you. And it's the hardest thing in the world. I had to do it on the way down here on the train because there's a big burden that I'm carrying at the office. Set that aside, Stephen. Set it aside. You can't fix it right now. Put it on the shelf. Give yourself over here. Ask yourself, who is your brother? Who is your sister? Who is your neighbor? Give yourself fully to that. Hanani, God, I'm with you. I'm with you 100% on this thing here. Right now, I'm going to give my heart, my soul, my mind. And God then shows up on that other thing and says, okay, Hanani, let's talk about it now. It may take a while. It's not a vending machine, but God promises it. And you might think, okay, well, Jesus said that too, didn't he? He said, um, if you try to find your life and grab hold of it, it'll, you'll lose it. Like one of those little rubber things that you find in the office and you squeeze it and the thing goes flying out. You know those things? Am I just crazy? Or just sand. It kind of goes through your head. You know those things. <laughs> You try to grab hold of your life and fix it now. I've got this problem. I've got this burden. I can't figure this out. What's my calling? Set that aside. I've got to figure out my life first. Then I'll ask this question that Larry and Steve are posing. I don't have time to do that now, Larry. I've got too much going on. Next week or the week after. Or the week, once I get, no. It's counterintuitive. Jesus says, give your life away now and then you will find it. Take, 
ask that question. Serve someone else, even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of your heart cry, and God shows up. Hineni, I'm at your disposal. That's an amazing. There's this X marks the spot in the middle of Isaiah chapter 58, and people who know it will speak about it with hushed tones. The question, should I stay, should I go, am I called, am I not? Wrong questions. The question is, how do I give my life, how do I spend myself and what God is calling me to spend myself on? Who's my neighbor? It doesn't matter if you go or stay. I mean, by the way, Tim or Terry never went. Now they took a trip. They didn't go. They asked that question, who is my neighbor and how am I going to spend myself on behalf of this person? By the way, when you spend yourself for someone because God has called you to, all the rest of it falls in line. You give lavishly. The million-dollar goal won't be a problem. Your emotions will be there. Your heart will be there. Your thinking, your thoughts will all be there. Hanani. How do we do this? How do we break it down? I mean, are you going to wait for your mailbox to blow up? <laughs> I'm not. I don't even have a mailbox. I don't even have one. How do we make this more concrete? How do we become radically available? How do we spend ourselves? Three ways. One is intellectual availability. What do we think about? You know, you occupy your mind with extraordinary things in your career, your profession, your hobbies. I'm amazed at what we can think about today. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. You can go on the internet and find what people are thinking about. If you're lost like I am on certain things, I go to the internet. You do the same, even when the internet's broke, like it was on Friday. Broke in. Uh, so I'm trying to do something for my wife because I love her. And she says, Stephen, why don't you build me a bathroom spa? Because I like to do things with my hands. I'm on planes and I'm on airplanes and trains and I travel and I talk and I have meetings. And sometimes it feels like I just didn't get anything done today. You know, you have all this stuff and you want to do something concrete. You start it, you finish it, done. You ever feel that way? So I like to build things. I used to dabble with that. I'm not very good at all. So how do you build a bathroom spa? Go online. Wow, there it is. How to make your wife really happy by building a bathroom spa. It's even more. Make sure your tub is bigger, twice as big as you're thinking, husband, because your wife will want a bathroom spa, not just a bathroom. How do you sweat pipes without burning down your house? It's right there on the internet. Use tinfoil up against the uh, two-by-four so you don't light your house on fire. Wow. It's amazing what we can think about. Do we think about God? Do we think about our neighbor with the full rigor of our intellect? Do we apply our knowledge over years and years? They say you can apply 10, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. God, if you're to, God were to answer that question, who is my neighbor, and it was someone down the road or someone across the world that's struggling with a certain particular issue, hunger or anti-trafficking, um, Suffering. Maybe it's one of these countries where there's radical um, fundamentalism. How do we apply our knowledge to those things as people? You may never leave your home. Are we uh, intellectually available for God? Secondly, are we emotional, emotionally available for our neighbor? This one is a hard one for our culture. 
I've been in meetings, I've been in conversations where I want to tell a story about someone like Harriet or uh, someone from Syria right now who's waking up in the middle of the night wondering if they should just stay in their bed and die peacefully or if they should try and escape. Christians, potential martyrs, you've seen some of this, right? You see this stuff coming and we always have, we have a choice. We can say, God, I just can't hear that right now. It's too much. It takes work to crevice open your heart and say, you know what, I'm going to hear it. I'm going to bold face hear these stories about little girls being stolen in traffic. Do we lament the way God calls us to lament? In the book of Psalms, David lamented over the evil of the world and others. Are we emotionally available? It's one thing to say, God, I'll do it. I'll, whatever you want me to do. It's another thing to say, God, I'm going to think about this for as long as you want me to. I'm going to apply my full intellect to it. It's another thing to say, I'm going to open up my heart, no matter how much it hurts, no matter if I don't have all the answers. My wife, who's a hero in my life, she did this a couple years ago. We lived in Africa, but, um, in Rwanda, but we, she had never made it across the border into Congo. And so a couple years ago, it was Mother's Day, and She's bold. She's an activist. I know she wants to know the truth. She tells me all the time, Stephen, the truth doesn't change no matter how much we're willing to stomach it. It's a Flannery O'Connor quote. So on Mother's Day, I made her breakfast, avocado and poached eggs and flour. And I put an I put a, uh, article next to her uh, breakfast. And it was called The World's Most Difficult Place to Be a Mother. Democratic Republic of Congo. And it just described a mother's life in Congo. For my wife, who's a writer, she's a teacher, but she is a mom. Within 10 minutes, I come back, how's the breakfast? And she's crying. I'm like, oh gosh, did I, I, don't, I don't think I should have done that. Friends say, Steve, you really should have waited one day for the article. <laughs> she thanked me. Stephen, I am going to just go after this, no holds bar, whatever I can do, but I'm going to feel what that mom feels because she can't protect her kids, she can't feed her kids. And sure enough, a while later, she went off to the Congo and she met with 10 women, one of whom was Esperance here. She heard her story about being out in the bush and some rebel armies came, attacked her and her husband, shot her husband point blank right in front of her, raped her, left her there. To die, she stayed there three days until one of her friends, her colleagues, her sisters came and rescued her. She was welcomed into the local church, we belief, helping the church help people, began to be restored. But to heard her story, and you know what? All she did was cry. She had nothing else to give. What do you say? And some of you know what it's like to be confronted with pain and suffering and grief and those things, you know? abuse, and you hear these stories, and all you can do is just cover your mouth and cry. Well, you also know when you do that, you validate that story. You tell that person they're legitimate, that it's real, that what they suffered was real, and it hurts me too. You know what Esperance said to Belinda? Through translation, Congolese, her language, dialect. You make me feel human again. 
You make me feel human again. She was emotionally available to Esperance. Now, that led to a whole lot of other stuff. And there's a whole group of women now. They call themselves peacemakers. They're helping one another. They're stopping the violence. They're helping to start small businesses together. All out of the context of the church, they worship together. They pray together. It's extraordinary. Now thousands. Not all from Belinda. There was a group, okay? Emotionally available. Are we willing to go after this stuff? Life is crazy. We don't have the time. Or do we have the time? Do we have the time to think about these things? And as we think about them, as we give our hearts to them, would we be surprised that things start to get a little bit more sorted out in our own lives? Belinda was struggling in mothering. She was struggling like many of us do. What is my calling? And I feel like I'm in this state of life. We used to live in Africa, and now I'm kind of here and... She was teaching in a school, and some of her colleagues were jealous, and things, one thing led to another. She felt she needed to resign, and painful stuff. And she takes a left-hand turn and starts to think and feel with someone else. But you might think, okay, great, there's this, this formula, this X marks the spot in Isaiah 58, and wow, if we do this, God will do that. And it's some, does it start to feel a little bit like works? Meritocracy. Steve here, he preaches grace. Larry, he preaches grace. Come on. No, 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 no. This is inside the covenant. This is Israel. They belong to God. Accepted. Sine qua non. Jesus paid the price. This is about making grace available to one another. This is about releasing the grace of God. It's not about earning it. And it's not a strict formula. You can't just do this and expect it's got to be, the heart has to be there. Why am I talking about availability at the intellectual level, at the emotional level? Because it proves our intentions and our motivations. We can't manipulate God. Intellectually available, emotionally available. And by the way, I know you're all emotionally available because you either love the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees. And when you go to those games or you watch them on television, you're very emotionally available. If anybody ever tells you at work, by the way, gosh, you know, or spouse or loved one, you know, you're just so emotionally unavailable, say this, boy, I don't know how, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> and you get a slap. You'll get a slap. That didn't work this time. I won't do it next time. <laughs> Thirdly, volitionally available, your will. Mind, emotions, will. Are you ready to say yes before God asks? Not send, not go, not stay. Yeah, those are good questions, and they're very important questions that you may end up going. But the most important question is, are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to spend yourself on that one thing? Are you willing to pray for 30 days like my friend Tim? Are you willing to ask that dangerous question? God, who is my neighbor? I want to read a closing prayer on this point of volition. It's a prayer by John Wesley. It's about commitment, about covenant. Say the prayer. Ask yourself, what do you think about? Where do you give your heart? Ask yourself if you're willing to say yes. I spent a lot of time the past couple of years thinking about this because I get the question all the time, what can I do? All the time when I speak, what can I do? What can I do now? People want the two-minute answer. So I promised I would only write a book if people, if, um, if it would be helpful, and if I could answer that question. 
And the book goes after some of what can I do, but it especially goes after who must I become, what is our calling, and it's a roadmap, it's a blueprint. It's a book out back if you need it. If anything you want to give towards its donation goes to these people in Rwanda, not, not me. Um, yeah, Hanani. Can we? Hanani before God. And will we trust that he will do the same for us in that beautiful covenant that he's given us? This is the prayer from Wesley. I'll pray it. I'll read it, and then I'll pray a little uh, ad lib on the end myself. Dangerous prayer. You can Google it. John Wesley covenant prayer. Oh, my, this prayer will impact you. He prays, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Tim and Terry, by the way, have a lot. And that wasn't taken away from them. God just redirected some of that to Uganda, now Rwanda, and around the world. Wow. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. It's the meaning of the word amen, right? So be it. Declare it. In this covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. God, Hanani. We spend ourselves for you, and we are humbled. We are overwhelmed with even the very thought, even the inclination that you would Hanani back to us. We love you, God. I bless my brothers and sisters. May their journey be surprising. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks, Steve, for... Uh... Great start to the missions conference. Thanks, Steve. Great start. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Just a couple of quick things. Don't forget that daylight savings time is next Sunday. So if you uh, don't forget to pop your clock ahead and um, don't be grumpy when you come to the final session of the missions conference. Secondly, don't forget to get tickets and stop by the book table. And uh, I'm going to give you one final thing, and then I'm going to pray. And that is, I, you know, we're a community here. We're people that like each other. So I'm going to ask you uh, not just to leave without talking to somebody. I want you to turn to the person next to you after I pray. And uh, if you could visit one country, um, not as a vacation, but as a, you're going there to understand a culture, what country would you like to visit? So introduce yourself, and then share that country and I should say that Hawaii is not a foreign country. Okay. All right, stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for Hanani and thank you that you're with us. Thank you that uh, God is pleased with us. And we're not perfect, but Father, we seek to be instruments that you use uh, in our neighborhood in our church, in our community, and throughout the world. Thank you, Father, for World Relief. Thank you for their ministry. Thank you for Stephen's ministry and for 
um, your goodness in our lives. And now as we go from this place, we go as grateful people. And God's people said, Amen. greet one another. We'll see you Wednesday. <laughs>